Well, our scripture lesson this morning comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, which is on page 838 of your pew Bible, 838 of your pew Bible. This is a transition point in the gospel of Mark. We have looked at the beginning and inauguration of his ministry. Chapter 2, we saw five different episodes, episodes of opposition to Christ by the scribes and Pharisees. And now in the middle of chapter 3, there's a, a turning point as Jesus turns away from that particular opposition towards the crowds. Now read with me Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had already for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve from whom he also, uh, whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Well, some of you know that Sally and I went to Atlanta this past week to see a concert. The concert was being performed by U2. It's a band known around the world, uh, probably one of the most popular bands uh, in the culture around the world. And they're recognizable for a couple of reasons, uh, one of which is that they've become a band that champions justice and mercy issues around the world. They have a campaign called the One Campaign that seeks to unite leaders around the world to solve problems like world hunger, uh, AIDS in Africa, uh, malaria, various issues like that, and to help out with um, not only poverty, but uh, political uh, opposition to it as well. Now, there were about 80,000 people at this particular concert. It was held in the Georgia Dome. It's a great crowd, but I suspect that the crowd gathered not simply for the humanitarian efforts that you 2 is seeking to perform around the world. You see, all of those things would fall on deaf ears if you 2 was not really good. You see, they're a great band. If they were a poor band, then most people wouldn't give them the time of day. They wouldn't listen to them. And I think that most of the people who were there at the concert and most of the people who follow you two around the globe think that it's nice what they're doing with their one campaign. But really, they just want the music. Really, they just want the music. They want to be entertained, and that's really the desire of the crowd. They will leave having seen a great show, 
But that's all that they will have seen. Now here, the crowds continue to grow around Jesus. We're told that he tries to withdraw with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed him. And he lists, Mark lists the various places from which this crowd comes. And these are places that mark out basically the boundary points of Israel. As if to say, all of Israel is now coming out, in a sense, to see Jesus. This great crowd has amassed. And Jesus is not one who is necessarily impressed by crowds. If this happened in our particular day, in our um, uh, way of marketing things, even in the church, more than likely we would call the newspaper, we would have some kind of media blitz about it. Come and see all the great crowds that are amassing. But Jesus does not go down to the Galilean Gazette and ask for a reporter to come and follow him. Look at all the great things that I'm doing. Look at the great crowds that I'm gathering here to myself. But you see, Jesus knows exactly why they've come. For it says, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. They heard what he was doing, his healing. And Jesus now surveys the crowd and he sees little of the kind of faith that he's really looking for. Not committing themselves to Jesus as the Messiah necessarily, but rather the crowds are gathering, you might say, just because they want the music. In other words, they want to see the show and they want to be healed. And in a way, you can't really blame them as we've seen the, the poverty in the land of Canaan during the first century. But this is really the great tragedy of the masses who at some point in their lives throughout history have come in contact with Jesus, whether it's directly by being healed in his earthly ministry or whether it's by hearing Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade or whether it's hearing of Jesus in a church service at some point or coming in contact with him through a friend who shares the gospel there are very many people throughout the centuries who had contact with Jesus, but never really come to him. When I was in Columbia, I heard uh, a man speak of uh, inviting a friend to come to church. And the friend, friend responded by saying, well, I'd rather not. You see, I'm a priester. He said, what's a priester? Well, I go to church on Christmas and Easter. And that's all that I'm willing to do. And there are people who do that. They come to church on Christmas and Easter. They hear the gospel message. But that's as far as they're willing to go. And they remain on the periphery of the Christian faith. Think of the moralists who go to church because good values are being taught. And we want our children to have good values instilled in them. And yet they never really come to Jesus. Think of our own children at times, and you may be one of them. Think of our high school students, many who grow up into the church. They hear the doctrines of grace. They go to church their whole lives because their parents bring them to church. And then they leave. And sometimes they're never to be found again. One startling statistic to me was most Christians who go into college professing faith in Christ, after graduating from college, 
are nowhere to be seen in the church. Less than 50%. They've grown up in the church. They've heard of Jesus. They've been part of the crowd, part of the masses. And they've never really come to Him. You know, the disciples don't seem much better the way that Mark portrays them so far. They've been part of the background scenery. Jesus has sort of played off of His disciples in the conflicts with the Pharisees and the scribes. But they haven't been front and center. They haven't professed any faith in Jesus yet. And Mark, throughout his Gospel, portrays the disciples as sort of being dull. They, they don't really understand His identity and His mission. They don't get who Jesus is and what He is seeking to do. And you probably can understand that given the fact that Peter is behind the writing of Mark's Gospel. Having so much influence over Mark during his time in Rome. So that Mark could present the disciples as being dull because Peter himself knew that he was dull and not willing to fully grasp the reality of who Jesus was during His earthly ministry. But the thing that we see in this passage that's really so amazing is not only does Jesus want more from the crowd, and He will demand more from the crowd, but out of His grace and mercy that sent Jesus to earth in the first place, He will give more to the crowd. Let me mention three things here. First is really His pity, or you might say His compassion towards them. Jesus withdraws here in verse 7 with His disciples from the battles with the religious leaders. We saw in verse 6 how the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Him, how to destroy things. Things have heated up. And Jesus is withdrawing with His disciples. Maybe for a time of refreshment. Luke tells us that this particular instance that Jesus withdraws and prays all through the night. Wanting to be with His heavenly Father and to know His assurance and His power. And yet what He finds here are crowds that press in upon Him. So much so that He calls for a boat as it says, lest He be crushed. It's almost the picture of, you can imagine a building filled with people and someone yells fire and people are rushing to the exits and crushing those in front of them as they're trying to get out. And here Jesus is beside the sea. The crowds are thousands strong. They are so great and pressing in upon Him that they would literally crush Him. So He has the disciples go and get a boat that He might sit in it in the sea. Maybe even teaching them as He does on a particular occasion. And I would say that this particular sight must have been overwhelming for the disciples. Not only because of the great numbers. Not only because of all that they're seeing as this great throng comes to Jesus over the horizon. But because of the misery that they see among these people that come. The pain that they see for these people come to be healed. I remember going to Peru on a mission trip a number of years ago. We went to the city of Lima, which swelled from 4 million people to 8 million people in the period of 10 years. There was no place for those people. And so basically they became squatters on the periphery of the city. And on the sides of the mountain they were granted land by the government 
And they could erect whatever kind of house or building they wanted. And the only things that they could afford were basically starting out with a cardboard shack and possibly moving up to maybe wooden sideboards. And then maybe if you are really blessed at some point, you could add some bricks onto the outside of it. One of the things that I noticed in being there is you looked at the children that we would play with while we were there doing our ministry. And the little children were so happy. They, they played with sticks and rocks and the dirt. They had no shoes. And they seemed to be so happy. But about the age of 12, 13, there was a completely different demeanor in the children. Because you see, they were of the age where they began to realize something's not right here. Things aren't the way that they should be. I long for something better than what I have here. And I can say for the rest of us who are on this missionary team that, that the reality of the poverty just pressed in upon us and the weight of it bared down on us because we knew there was nothing significant that we could do to solve the problem. And yet here is Jesus with this great crowd coming to Him. Their faith is misguided. They don't understand who Jesus is. They don't know why He has come. And yet He has compassion upon Him. He loves them anyway. We're told in verse 10, He healed many. Though their faith is misguided, though they don't understand Him, though they would seek simply to use Him, He is so compassionate and merciful. Shows so much pity that He is willing to heal them anyway. You see, in Jesus, there seemed to be this boundless resource of compassion that could handle such a great crowd as this. And Matthew, in his Gospel, gives us insight into Jesus' feelings towards the crowd just before He appoints the twelve apostles. We're told in chapter 9, verse 36, when He saw the crowd's He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks at the crowd and doesn't have contempt for them for their lack of faith. He has love for them. He has compassion for them. He shows pity towards them because He knows they are like sheep without a shepherd. Brings to mind the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 34 where Ezekiel, or God through Ezekiel, condemns the shepherds of Israel because they've sought to take from the sheep rather than to give to the sheep. Rather than to bless them, they have taken from them. And what he says is that now I will come and I will pursue my sheep and I will love them. And that's exactly what he is doing in Christ. Pursuing his sheep and loving them. Now, some of you know what it's like to have received compassion, pity from a neighbor. Times when you have been downcast, maybe having lost a loved one, and just the, just the touch of somebody next to you to, to say, I am here, communicates more than a thousand words. Others of you know what it's like to be in great need and Maybe a time in your life where you barely had two pennies to rub together. And yet somebody was merciful towards you. But see, Jesus' pity on the crowds and His pity upon us 
goes far deeper than something like that. It goes far deeper. Because as the prophet Isaiah would tell us, it's by His stripes that we are healed. The great chapter in Isaiah speaking of the Messiah coming to heal His people, to remove their sin as a sacrifice of atonement. It's not simply about being forgiven of your sins, but it's, it's complete healing that Jesus will accomplish for His people. And we see it prefigured here that will ultimately take place in glory where not only your sin will be removed, but all the effects of the curse will be taken away. Your illness, all the tragedy that you've known in your life will be removed. All because of the compassion and love of Jesus to go to the cross. You see, His resources of compassion for you go far deeper than anybody else's in this particular world. Because He is not not like anybody in this particular world. But you know, other than extraordinary circumstances in our lives, most of us don't feel as though we need the compassion that Jesus displays here. Most of us don't feel like we need it. And in fact, I would say most of us don't want to be on the receiving end of someone else's pity and compassion and mercy. Because for us, what that means is it's a statement of weakness and frailty. We want to be strong. We don't want to be those people who are in need. That's, that's for somebody else. And, and I'll show them mercy and compassion. But I don't need anything. My friends, it just takes a cursory look at our lives to say that's not true. Just think of the economic climate of our world today. How many people have realized their own vulnerability, their own frailty, when jobs are pulled out from underneath them, when homes are taken away, when the economy begins to crash, all of a sudden we feel a sense of vulnerability. We feel a sense of weakness. And then we begin to say, Lord, have compassion, have pity on me, for I need it. Think of friendships. Specifically friendships, if you're a younger person. I can remember growing up you know, in middle school and in high school and it seems as though friendships at times weren't those things that you could really trust. Friends weren't necessarily there for you in all circumstances. And if you were to do something a little bit socially awkward or if you were to threaten one of them, then all of a sudden those friendships begin to dissolve and break apart and you don't have what you thought you had at one time. Relationships can crumble around us. And it reveals our own vulnerability. You might think of other things like your own health. Certainly illness that can crop up at any time. Injury that might put you out of work for a season. Maybe even an accident that causes an injury that doesn't allow you to fulfill a lifelong dream that some people might have. There's more that we could say. Point being is that we are far more vulnerable than what we understand. And we desperately need the compassion, the pity, and the mercy of Christ. Think about the providence of God. How little we think of how compassionate God is in His providence toward us. 
to uphold our lives, to sustain our health, to keep our jobs, to hold our families together. This is God's providential work and He is doing it all of the time. He is always extending mercy and pity and compassion to people like you and me. And we need to understand that fact. But you know, the most important understand, thing to understand here is not just what Jesus is willing to do, but what kind of people He was willing to show pity towards. I mentioned before that the crowds are misguided. The disciples don't clearly understand. Jesus is used to the praises of heaven. He deserved glory from the crowds. He deserved for them to fall on their knees and praise Him. And yet we see none of that. You see, they took without giving glory. And if anybody treated us that way, we would say they did not deserve our compassion. And that is not the way that the Savior works. For He is full of compassion and love. It is, it is His compassion and love that brought Him here in the first place. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. If it were not for the compassion of God towards sinners, Christ never would have come in the first place. And so what we need to understand here is that He doesn't show compassion to us just once in a while. Because we've lived so well at other times that we deserve it. No, it's the, just the opposite. It's that He's constantly showing compassion towards us. And not because we deserve it. Because He is willing to come and be hanged on a tree for wicked and desperate people like us. But you know, pity and compassion are no good unless there's power coupled with it. And that's what we see in Christ. There's power to heal. Pity joined with power, as the hymn writer says. And that's the second thing we see about Jesus. Not only His, his pity, but His power here too. See, there's another kind of work or kind of power at work beyond His power to heal. And we see it here in verses 11 and 12. Whenever the unclean spirit saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And He strictly ordered them not to make Him known. Now we've seen this before in chapter 1, where a demon in the synagogue cries out, You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus silences him. Now, Jesus is often recognized by the demons. They approach Him with fear. We're told here that He falls down before Jesus. In a way, He does exactly the opposite of what the crowds do. We're told in the book of James that the demons believe and shudder. They know who Jesus is. And they fall down before Him in fear. So why silence the demon? You've got the crowd at hand. The demon is declaring who Jesus is. You're the Son of God. Why silence Him? This is great propaganda. This is great marketing for Jesus. Let's consider the purpose of Mark's Gospel. Remember how it opened? The beginning of the good news of the Son of God. It's a declaration from the very beginning that this writing is about the Son of God. Now, by the time we get to chapter 8, we'll see that Peter 
confesses Jesus to be the Christ. But it's not actually until chapter 15 that a non-Christian, a Gentile, a Roman guard looks up at Christ on the cross as He breathes His last breath and says, surely this man was the Son of God. Do you see what Mark is doing in his Gospel? It's telling us not just events in Jesus' life, but He's wanting us to read the story so that it instills faith in Christ that we see Him as the Son of God and that we believe upon Him as the Son of God. So why silence the demon? Well, many reasons have been given for silencing the demons throughout the years. Let me mention two that I think are most noteworthy. One, is that the crowds misunderstood who the Messiah and who the Son of God were to be. They thought of the Messiah primarily in royal terms, that He would be this royal agent of God who would overthrow the enemies of Israel and once again instill the Davidic reign over the earthly kingdom of Israel. The Scriptures in the Old Testament speak of the Son of God both referring to the nation of Israel, that the nation is the Son of God, and to particular individuals, primarily the Davidic king. Think of Psalm 2. So here, the people of God are looking for not the eternal Son of God, but an earthly Son of God. And what Jesus wants is for them to come to understand who He is. Not from the lips of demons, in hostility, but from faith. You see, the second reason beyond the fact that they misunderstood who He was to be was that He wanted His ministry to be proof of His Messiahship. He wanted His ministry to be proof of the fact that He is the Son of God who not only will come to rule and reign, but will come as the suffering servant to sacrifice Himself on the cross, giving up His life for His people. And He wants all of His works of ministry to bear testimony to this identity and this particular purpose. These demons here would simply misguide the crowds and make them think of Him as simply another earthly agent, earthly agent of the King of Heaven and attempt to lead the crowd further astray. And so this power that Jesus is exercising here is power to silence those who would lead the crowd astray so that His identity can be realized by faith as they come to Him and see all of His great works. You see, that's why we're going through the Gospel of Mark in the first place. So that we could see Jesus clearly. And that we might come to Him, not only our preconceived notions of who He is, that we would see Him clearly as the suffering King who would die on behalf of His people to heal them, to bring them to Himself and to His heavenly Father. You see, there are many views of the Lord Jesus in our culture. We have many views of Christ in our own hearts. And Jesus is saying, I so love My people that I will not stand for them to be misguided and misled about who I am. Praise God that Jesus will overthrow 
every one of our false ideas about who He is. And He will lead us into the truth so that we come to Jesus, the true Jesus, and receive every good gift that He can offer to us. And so Jesus has pity on the crowds. He shows His power on behalf of the crowds. But here also at the very end, He shows His plan too to reach the crowds. Now Jesus here goes up on the mountain to uh, separate from the crowds. He wants to call to Himself true disciples, not just simply those who are following everybody else. And His intention here is to be with His disciples. We're told that in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with His disciples. Now Jesus' plan here is not to avoid the masses, but rather to be able to reach the masses through His chosen instruments, through those who would profess faith in Him, through those who are frail and imperfect themselves, men whom He will choose, men men who have not fully grasped His identity and purpose themselves. But let me mention three quick things about this plan. First of all, Jesus is going to train them. He says in verse 14, And He appointed twelve, whom He also named apostles, so that they might be with Him. So that they might be with Him. Because you see, nobody can minister on behalf of Jesus unless they've been with Jesus to understand who He is and how He ministers. Because what Jesus wants to do is to write and impress His grace upon every one of our lives. A few years ago, I was uh, listening to Dr. Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia. He, uh, during his college years, went to a church where the Reverend William Still was the pastor. William Still is a uh, fairly famous pastor from Scotland, and he wrote a number of books and Dr. Ferguson grabbed one of his books one day and he took it to Mr. Still after church and he said, I would really love your autograph on the inside the front cover. Mr. Still looked back at him and said, that's not where I want to write my autograph. And he pointed to his chest and he said, now that's where I want to write my autograph. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing with every one of his disciples is writing His autograph of grace upon the hearts of everybody who would come to Him in faith. Now, here is where they would get to know the real Jesus, to feel the weight of His glory and the weight of His cross that bared down upon Him. By being drawn so close to Jesus, Jesus would make that indelible impression Upon them, so much so that the onlookers in the book of Acts could say, These men have been with Jesus. These men have been with Jesus. My friends, have you so experienced the compassion and the power of Christ and drawn so close to Him that everybody around you could say, Now that person has been with Jesus? That ought to be everybody's confession who knows us. That person has been with Jesus. Because to draw near to Jesus is to know His grace, His compassion, 
is power in our lives that radically changes us. Because if, if you haven't experienced the compassion of Jesus, how can you show compassion in a Christ-like manner to anybody else? If you haven't experienced the power of Jesus to reveal Himself as He truly is to you, and to break down all the misconceptions that you have of Him, so that you would know Him as He truly is, His goodness and His grace and His love. If you've never experienced that, how can you share that with anybody else? My friends, draw near to Jesus and walk with Him. So Jesus will train them. But secondly this, Jesus will send them out. We're told here, in verse 14, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Now, these men were set apart as apostles, we're told, sent ones. They have a particular role in the church, a particular authority. There are other people in the book of Acts that are spoken of as apostles, but they're sent by the church and not by Jesus. So these men have a particular authority and role in the New Testament church, but they're pattern of ministry is followed after the pattern of ministry of the Savior. And therefore, it's the same pattern of ministry that we are to exercise as well. Here we're seeing we see how he sends them out with authority to preach and to cast out demons. In other words, they're to exercise the same kind of authority that Jesus has in the same ways. And when they do so. And when they do so, Jesus is revealed. Because when the powers of the kingdom come and the preaching of the kingdom is proclaimed, people see and hear about Christ. That's what they are called to do. They're not exercising authority for themselves because it's a derived authority. It's to be exercised on behalf of Christ and for him, for his sake. You see, they're given authority to make Jesus known. And as we exercise that same kind of authority in ministry in an analogous way to proclaim Christ and to do the works of the kingdom, it's exactly what we are doing. We are sent out. Sent out that we might bear witness to Christ and make him known. The final thing here is this, that Jesus also is going to create a new community. We're told that he appoints 12. The number 12 is significant. Matches up with the 12 tribes of Israel as if to say, I'm going to create a new community. I'm going to create a new community, a new people of God that comes and is birthed out of the old community. And Jesus here in drawing these particular men from all different walks of life, they're of different personality types. They come from different backgrounds. They're different types of people. And yet He's going to draw them all together into one community by the power of His grace. Because you see, Jesus isn't satisfied with the crowds coming in the way they were coming. But what He wants is to draw people out of the crowds to make a new kind of crowd. To make a new kind of community. One in which His grace and glory is manifested through His disciples. 
And so just as He has this great plan through His apostles, my friends, we're to take up that same plan too. That Jesus' pity and His power might be known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that Jesus did not pack up and close up shop at all the resistance that He received in His ministry, but that He continues to pursue, continues to bear witness to Himself, and even empowers His followers to do the same. Oh, Heavenly Father, may we be those people who have so received Your compassion have so understood Your power over our lives, Your good and righteous reign, we want to go out and display it to others as well. That Your plan of reaching the masses would be fulfilled in us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.